Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sunday Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm all right. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, the producers and the actors have broken off negotiations, and it's unclear when they'll start again, throwing upcoming film releases into doubt and essentially ending the hopes of a forthcoming TV season for the networks. Uh, the studios say they offered SAG-AFTRA, uh, the, the, the actors' union, the same deal as the directors and the writers got more or less, you know, including raises and a success-based residual for streaming shows that echoed the deal the writers got, providing bonuses for hits, as well as some protections on how studios could use AI-created renderings of actors. Um, the actors countered by saying that the AI protections weren't nearly strong enough, that the raises st- the studios had offered do not keep up with inflation. And then they they kind of restructured what they were asking for in terms of residuals by coming down from like a flat 2% of all revenue to 57% cents per subscriber per year, a figure that comes out to around 2% of revenue, I guess, maybe a, a little less, hard to say. The AMPTP walked away from the negotiating table saying the two sides are just too far apart. And now we all wait again. We wait. We wait for them to start talking again or for everybody in this situation to act like adults and get this thing done. For showbiz to get back to business. Show business needs to be in business. And the best part is we get to pontificate about who's right and who's wrong without knowing all the details or anything. It's really fun. This is the best part of being a pundit is, you know, the pontificating. It's great. So since we have nothing better to do, allow me to suggest that I have the actual answer. I've got the answers here. I know who's right and wrong about which portions of which deal. All right, in terms of the AI protections, I think the actors are almost entirely in the right, right? They they have the most to lose by allowing studios to do whatever they want in perpetuity with their scans and are better off holding firm on this point than anything else, anywhere else in this, this whole negotiation. Um, the way I've seen it explained is that the studios want to be able to scan someone and then use that scan in perpetuity for a franchise, which, like... I don't know if you guys know this, but the MCU is on year 736 of their franchise. Uh, they, like, if you give up that, then you you might as well just get out of the business, especially if you're an extra. You scan an extra once and he can show up in Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, or Wakanda forever, for, forever, like the number forever. Never mind. All right. Uh, but the, the point is, like, that totally, totally on the side of the actors there. In terms of the raises, the uh, the actors are kind of right and the studios are kind of right, I think. I understand why the actors are asking for more. Everybody wants more. Uh, And I'm sure, uh, but I'm I'm just not sure that they're going to get, you know, a ton more than the directors and the writers got, nor am I sure they should. These things kind of happen in unison. Um, Maybe they get an extra point or two, if so, great. I I would I can't believe that this is one of the things that's holding everything up. The performance-based residual uh, is one of the first places where I'm looking at this whole labor stoppage between the writers and the the actors, and I feel like the actors are basically wrong here. The the amount of money they're asking for is astronomically high. It represents revenue rather than profit, uh, and it doesn't really actually seem to be tied to actual success. I mean, it's not clear specifically how these bonuses would be doled out, if it would be up to the union itself, if it would be up to, you know, who has a great hit show, whatever. Um, And unlike 
the writer's deal, which ties bonuses to viewership data. Again, it sets out an exact amount of money that is gained for hitting a certain you know benchmark of shows. The actors are just kind of looking at getting a big pot of money. It's not entirely clear to me that the money would get to the people who most need it as an actual residual. Like, to wit, right, you have uh, something like Red Notice, right, with a movie that costs $200 million because 60 to $80 million of it is going to buy out the back ends of Gal Gadot, uh, The Rock, and Ryan Reynolds. And any sort of performance or success-based residual that doesn't exempt the stars who are already getting all of their money up front and distribute it further down the castle, it's like, what's the actual point of that? The whole point of streaming is that they have negotiated these big packages. They shouldn't get any of that money. That money should go further down. But I, I guarantee you, you're not going to the big stars and saying, we're not, we're stopping production. We're not doing any of this. And you're not going to get any of the money. I'm at a mild loss here. Uh, but I, you know, again, this is because we're just pontificating. We are not in the room. We don't, we don't get to see the details. It's great. Peter, the sense I get from the newsletters and some of the own, the people I talk to, you know, I've got my sources. I've got very important insider sources. They are fairly skeptical of the breadth of what the actors are asking for in a way that I, I never heard once with the writers um, or even the actors early on. Uh, who do you think is going to blink first in this situation? Well, it depends on who needs to eat first to some extent, right? It, the actors are... Uh, at this point, going back to work in non-acting jobs. There's a New York Times story about uh, how many actors have gone back to literal, you know, uh, waiting tables, restaurant work, bartending, that sort of thing. And so at some point, the actors are going to have to decide, it's, do they want to work, right? Do, and do they want to make movies? But the producers also have that, uh, have, have that in front of them, too, because production is shut down and because they can't really make any, they can make deals now, but they can't make movies. So, you know, the producers in some ways have the upper hand because they can probably last a little bit longer, especially with the writer's stuff wrapped up. And so I, I, if I had to guess, I think it's the, the actors uh, who blink first and who probably say, well, we're, we'll give on at least a little bit of this. But I don't know. I don't know how this sort of thing goes because it's not obvious it's not obvious what the what like the the end scenario is going to look like. I mean it's it's one of these negotiations where it's like, well, the things that the actors say they want are it like if you if you if they really truly expect to get the whole package, then this is going to go on for a long time because they are probably not going to get it and they're going to have to decide at some point what they can live with. Alyssa, the the counter to the the argument against uh, the actors getting a piece of revenue as opposed to profit is that, look, Hollywood math is a thing, right? The, the studios have essentially spent the last 100 years perfecting the art of screwing people out of profit participation. Um, and if, they, uh, if, if the actors want to ensure that they get something – close to what they they think they deserve they have to get in uh, you know at at dollar dollar one they get they need they need a piece of dollar one which I again I'm I'm kind of sympathetic to except that's really just not how it works in business yeah and I would also say I mean look I am I feel like as the strike has gone on I my insights have sort of run out of road to a certain extent um but I think part of what this illustrates is that it's really bad to blow up your entire business model because it's one thing to do Hollywood economics on people and sort of actively deceive them about what works and, you know, what's producing actual profits. It's another thing to sort of blow up your profit and accounting structure entirely in favor of, you know, just sort of a wildly disaggregated, you know, 
system of figuring out what's worth what. And so, you know, in a way, it almost feels like it's more sensible to go back to the sort of studio contracts where you get paid a thousand dollars a week or, you know, whatever the going rate for various actors is, because I don't know how much the entertainment industry knows about what's working and why right now. Right. I mean, if, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about, you know, why it's sort of risky to say like, okay, give us the streaming numbers because what if the streaming numbers show that nothing works, right? Um, And, you know, if you're one of the big stars who signed a giant deal with Netflix, like I'm not actually sure you want those numbers released either because, you know, what do they end up saying about your bankability, right? I mean, we've, you know, we've talked some about the way Dwayne Johnson has, for example, has not kind of not lived up to his kind of ostensible reputation in Hollywood, right? I mean, you know, someone who... Well, he hasn't as an actor. He has in some ways as a financial proposition because he makes very sort of moderately competent, not particularly interesting movies that make money or that are successful because they are uh, they go through streamers where their profit doesn't, box office revenue is not part of the equation. Right, but that's sort of what I mean, right? I mean, if you are Dwayne Johnson and you failed to make Shazam work, um, you haven't really... You I'm know, sorry, I will not say... Black Adam, not, Black not Shazam. Adam. How dare you <laughs> confuse the two I, lightning bolt let, superheroes? Let me, let me read <laughs> um, You know, if you're Dwayne Johnson and you failed to make Black Adam work, you've had this sort of blow up on the other franchise that you were working on, you know, are you sure that you really want the numbers for all your for your Netflix projects to come out? Because what if they suggest that you're not actually a huge draw, right? I mean, there's an extent to which these sort of streaming mega deals have kind of been a helpful fig leaf for some of these actors as the box office has been a little bit shakier and more unpredictable. And so, I mean, I think that I am... I think inherently going to be less sympathetic to the producers because it's them and the studios who kind of blew up their own business model by chasing the streaming dragon. Um, But I don't think anyone knows how anything works and that makes it really hard to negotiate a contract that makes sense for anyone. And so, you know, I think again, look, I'm always going to be, more sympathetic to the actors. I do think the threat of AI is really existential and for the actors, not just existential in the way it was for the writers, but sort of profoundly creepy, right? I mean, it's one thing to be replaced. It's another thing to be replaced by your own doppelganger, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I sort of thought this was going to wrap up sooner after the actors settled. Um, And given that it's not, I think this could go on for a long time because the business is so broken that nobody knows what's fair. And so everyone is going to feel really aggrieved and angry, possibly with good reason. And it's just, it's hard to know what the appropriate points to give are if you're the actors, maybe except on the AI stuff. Um, And it's, it's hard to want to give anything at all if you're the producers, because I mean, maybe Taylor Swift and Beyonce are just going to replace you all. You mentioned Boeing of the business model, and that really is the key thing here. And this is, again, this is why for for one of the the few times in in my my life, I am like more much more sympathetic to uh, labor than capital here is because you know 
the, the studios have made a bunch of uh, radical changes and they did it unilaterally. And now they're like, oh, we don't have any money. And it's like, well, you, you did that. But that said, like, it's very, it's it's almost kind of, it's almost, it's almost deeply ironic in a like short story sort of sense that for years and years and years, for decades, Hollywood would screw, screw, essentially just screw people out of money, right? You know, actors on the Star Wars movies talk about getting their, their, you know, their profit statements back on A New Hope. And apparently it still hasn't made money. It's still, you know, all, all these years and all the billions later, still, still losing money for George Lucas. I don't know how he can eat. I mean, how uh, much do you think intergalactic space travel costs? So right. I mean, it's really expensive. very expensive. I'm sure he took out huge loans to buy the Millennium Falcon and put it into actual space. All uh, those THX special editions, you know, they're they're loss leaders, man. You got to exactly. keep the brand in the public eye. They're, they're loss leaders for the McDonald's cups. But like the irony of this now is that Hollywood is in a situation where they actually don't know what precisely is making them money. Like when you when you have something on Netflix, like uh, a red notice that gets a billion, you know, views or whatever, like, okay, that maybe, maybe that is what is driving the profit. But like, is anybody signing up for red notice? Is anybody like, I have to get Netflix so I can see red notice. Like it just, they, there's no, there's no real actual good sense of like, what is making money, how much money that thing is making and how to split the money that that thing makes with uh, the people who, participate. I mean, it's it's wild. It is a wild time. I do think that the actors are essentially asking streamers to treat them as a kind of a collective executive in the room because the, the, the sort of the revenue sharing model in some sense says you, uh, you have, you have a, a kind of executive ownership stake in the whole organization rather than you are workers who have been employed to do a project. And that is a request that the actu- the people who are actual executives are going to have a very hard time, understandably, uh, saying yes to. And they're going to not say yes for a couple of reasons. One is it's just not it, – it like it, in some sense, it just doesn't fit the job description. When you're an actor, you're an actor working on a project. Now, yes, if you are uh, an AI, you know, specter who, is, who has been put into many projects, then that's a different thing. And maybe that's the way to, to do this is just actors should just let their AI likenesses be used forever in exchange for a, for like a very large share of the revenue. Um, uh, no, but like that's, that's also not going to happen. But like you're – you're working on a project and you should be paid first to do the work and second if the project is successful. That's the model that Hollywood has always worked on. And there are obviously issues about knowing whether or not a project is successful, but Netflix does in fact have uh, a bunch of information on the back end that they're just not sharing. Um, also, you know, Netflix is in the unique position of, of uh, being the most successful streamer and actually making this work in a way that some of the other studios have not. But like the, the thing that they're asking is basically just a, like a sort of a, a, a tax on, you know, a, it's not a tax in the governmental sense, but like a tax on every subscriber. It's about 57 cents per subscriber. That might not seem a lot like a lot. But the one thing we know is that the biggest deal and or, or one of the biggest single factors for whether or not people sign up and stay sign up is price. Um, obviously, Netflix does do price hikes, but this would be a price hike that wouldn't go that in some sense wouldn't go towards the organization at all. And I just I, I find it very difficult to see 
that the producers are going to give on that. And so until the actors can figure out what they want, probably instead uh, of that, I think this this is going to this is going to loom over us. I basically also see two pressure points on the horizon on the calendar here. One is uh, something like Thanksgiving or the holidays, because that will allow people to promote their. Uh, their awards films at the end of the year. And I think people do care about promoting those films. Um, and so getting a deal done before then would both, uh, also people would like to ha be able to have the holidays and think, oh, you know, what am I going to work on next year? Because I know I'm going to be able to work. That That's a big deal. And the other pressure point is the Oscars. Um, if there's no deal done by the end of the year, then the next pressure point on the calendar is, is the Oscars. Because what do you do if the actors are still on strike and you want to have the Oscars? I guess you don't have the Oscars. You, you just can have, have writers, a, though, so you can have jokes. Maybe it's an all-writers Oscars, which would be hilarious. Bunch of bunch of schlubs showing up, like, in, in tuxes that don't fit to collect their writing awards because the public really, I care, but, like, just the public doesn't care about that. I want Wes Anderson to produce and host, like, an incredibly symmetrical Oscars. There we go. That's it. That's the idea. But it's like, it's got to be all stop motion, and that way we won't need actors. That yeah. sounds amazing. All right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that these dang strikes still aren't over? At least one of the strikes is not over. Uh, Alyssa. It's a controversy. Peter. It's a controversy. Controversy and the strikes. Do it now. I don't care what the deal is. It doesn't matter to me. Make sure to swing by across the movie aisle on Friday at Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on our favorite books about the film industry tied to the Hollywood Reporter's list of 100 greatest such books, which I was honored to be asked to contribute to. It's not often you're going to find Sonny Bunch and Steven Spielberg in the same jury pool, but I pulled it off for once in my miserable life. All right, and now on to the main event. Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. It's in theaters now. Uh, so here's the thing. I'm mildly conflicted on how to review this motion picture cinema event uh, because on the one hand, I'm a firm believer in trying to examine a work on its own terms. A cheap horror film is not going to be judged by the same metrics as an award season Kate Blanchett vehicle, uh, nor is an MCU picture uh, going to be considered in the same way uh, work by Martin Scorsese is going to be considered, right? That's, that is like the, the big reason we have so many fights about what movies are good and what are, like people are trying to compare everything on the same metric and that is a foolish idea. You don't, you shouldn't do that. And with that in mind, uh, Taylor Swift, The Era's Tour, sets out to do precisely one thing, serve as a 165-minute chronicle of most of a Taylor Swift concert. I think it was taped over three days in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium. Uh, God only knows what SoFi got in terms of the the uh, what value they got out of the branding of this thing, because you see SoFi Stadium all over the, the, the movie. Um, in that regard, it is absolutely a success. This is definitely a movie that gives us uh, 2.75 hours of a Taylor Swift concert from the city of Los Angeles at the end of the era's tour. There is no denying that there are songs and there are, there's a light show and there's dancing and there's a stage that goes up and down and there's music and there's costume changes and there are shots of crowds reacting deliriously to being in the presence of Taylor Swift, a musical artist of some renown. On the other hand, that's all this movie is. That's all it is. Uh, there's no greater context. There's no window into a social cultural moment. There's no backstage banter. There's no behind the scenes stuff. We have no idea how this thing came together. Uh, I think I learned more about Taylor Swift, the person, 
and frankly, the artist, from the pre-roll in front of the film at the Alamo Draft House, where we saw lots of clips of her giving interviews and talking about, you know, how she's perceived and, and you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, then I did from the movie itself. This isn't Truth or Dare, the, the documentary about Madonna's concerts in the, uh, in the I think it was the early 90s or late 80s. Uh, there, this isn't Woodstock, right, about, you know, the Woodstock Music Festival, the signature musical festival of the boomer era. Um, this isn't Martin Scorsese's The Last Dance that gives us a window into the, the glimpse of an end of an era and has tons of interviews with people talking about, you know, their their in, influence on each other and, and how, how this whole thing came together. Um, the film does not give us a reason to care about it if we don't like the music. It is fundamentally ephemeral. And look, there's something to be said for effective ephemera. My eight-year-old daughter has seen it twice now. She loved it both times. She's a huge Taylor Swift fan. But as Robert Warshaw wrote in The Immediate Experience, quote, a man watches a movie and the critic must acknowledge that he is that man, end quote. And this critic was simply bored for very long stretches of this movie because I am not a Taylor Swift fan. I don't care about her music. It's, I find it inoffensive. I don't, it's not like I'm sitting there thinking like, God, this is the worst thing I've ever listened to. It's just like, eh, it's fine. It's pop, pop, pop music. It's fine. Uh, there are undoubtedly interesting things about this movie, but they are all extraneous to the movie itself. Questions of business involving the Swift, family, Swift family's deal with AMC theaters. Discussion of the enormous pre-sales, but very weak walk-up traffic, um, which I am like kind of curious if, if, you know, normies saw the videos of people freaking out in theaters and were like, no thanks. I'll wait to see this when it comes out on Netflix. Um, whether or not Taylor Swift understands the theory of windowing better than the film industry itself. Spoiler, I think she does. Uh, all that stuff is pretty interesting. But the movie itself, fantastically mid. It's just, it's very mid. She's, it's mid. It's fine. Alyssa, were you dancing in the aisles of your local draft house? Um, not quite dancing in the aisles because it's been a week. Um, but I think, Sonny, my theory is that you are only resentful of this movie because you didn't go with me and Peter and thus it didn't get handcrafted across the movie aisle friendship bracelets. Uh, they were true. so cute. I was Which, I was denied. It's true. Next time you are in D.C., you can take delivery of yours um, and, you know, maybe we can uh, raffle some off for some diehard ATMA fans. Um, they come in uh, movies with friends, ATMA forever, uh, Sunny is always right, and uh, best podcast in your feed. Great, so. great little, little tchotchkes. I am a Taylor Swift fan. I really, really like her music for many of the reasons that I've talked about on this podcast before when we talk about musical theater. Um, for me, lyrics are some of the most important parts of music in a way that I think is much less true for the two of you, um, in part because I think I, you know, I have just more of an ear for lyrics, like they come through more clearly for me as sort of a sonic element of music and um swift is a very very gifted narrative songwriter um her you know emily st james wrote a piece a couple years ago arguing that taylor swift is basically the millennial bruce springsteen and i think that's functionally true her um her albums really function like short story collections a lot of the time um she writes with you know she has good word choice. She writes with like real sort of narrative economy. Um, there's a Sasha Fair Jones profile of her from I think 2008 where he singles out this one lyric from her song 15, which unfortunately 
was not part of the version of the Eras tour that we saw. But it's this incredibly like simple couplet. It's, um, you know, 15 is a song about, again, being 15, being sort of emotionally vulnerable. And so it has this line about a girl and her friend. And it's the line is, um, Abigail gave everything she had to a boy who had changed his mind. And we both cried. And it's a it's an almost, you know, for sale, baby shoes never worn kind of lyric, right? It's, um, you know, it doesn't say she had sex with him. It doesn't say that, you know, um, it, you know, it's, it, there's no detail necessary because each word is chosen so precisely. And that kind of sort of quality story writing um, has carried all the way through her career. And you know, for me, someone who likes Taylor Swift a lot, who likes her lyrics, who is sort of interested in the narratives around her and the way that she navigates fame, I think in a way this is probably the one of the ideal ways to see the Eras tour, just in the sense that it didn't involve, you know, paying the equivalent of like several months of my kids' college savings uh, to do it. I could see and hear everything that was happening, something that, you know, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a short American, and so... Music shows are often kind of hard for me because, it you know, if I'm near the stage in a show that just has like general admissions, I often can't see anything. It's one of the reasons that I like seeing Spoon live in concert because Britt Daniel is tall, so I can see him. <laughs> uh, but for a show like this, I, you know, even if I was very close to the stage, I would not be able to see anything in much detail. And if I was higher up, like Taylor Swift would be like incy wincy and it would be like, okay. I'm, I'm aware globally that I'm in the presence of Taylor Swift, but I'm not really like seeing Taylor Swift in detail. Um, and so, you know, a like extremely HD, like close shot version of this is probably the best way to see the Eras tour. And I, I really enjoyed it on sort of a strong song by song basis. Um, Taylor Swift is nothing if not like an A student, right? Like she comes, she's like incredibly prepared. She hits all of her marks. Um, you know, she's not, she doesn't like screw up at any point in this. And Peter and I were actually sort of talking about this afterwards. And it's like, to a certain extent, it makes it less fun, right? It's like, you know, there's, there, there is nothing spontaneous or sort of unplanned about it, but all the performances are executed just really strongly. Um, but that said, I felt like as a concept, the way the show was organized actually felt kind of weak to me. Um, you know, in a way, I would almost rather she have done the eras in chronological order. So you could sort of see the, you know, the evolution happening in real time as a kind of like, you know, time lapse of her career. Or, you know, I've had just like a little bit more talking and explanation about why she was ordering the albums in the way that she ordered them. Um, I think she ordered them the way she did, basically to create a three-act structure. And so you see uh, you see in this, just in the tone, the emotional tonality of the different songs, you see a pretty clear Hollywood beat-by-beat beat kind of opening act, inciting incident, second act, uh, right? Like a there's a big up, a, you know, sort of a high point in the middle. There's a quiet moment at the end of the second act. And then, you know, we finish out in, in, you know, the final 40 minutes or so. It's actually just in terms of the of the the, the kind of the tone of each song in the, of the ordering. It's it seemed to me like it was just done to hit those three act beats, like nearly on the minute. Yeah, 
And I, I think that's probably correct. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of her own arc doesn't yes. work that way. And that's actually part of what's interesting about her, right? Like Swift is famous for writing sort of love songs and breakup songs. And she interestingly, you know, broke up with her long-term partner sort of as this tour kicked off. And one of the things that is very interesting about the interplay between Swift's music and her persona is that she has not followed the sort of conventional romantic arc expected of a woman, both like of her age, her looks and her um, and her sort of social position. She has never been married. She, as far as anyone knows, has never been engaged. She doesn't have kids. She, for someone who writes these very sort of conventional romantic songs in some ways, she is kind of not living that script in a way that is, it's increasingly interesting as she gets older. And, you know, I I, saw, I forget who made this observation because I wish I could credit it because it's a really good one. Um, I saw someone compare um, Midnight's her most recent album to Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love, um, which was his sort of divorce album. He was taking some time off from the E Street Band. Um, I believe played almost all of the instruments on it by himself. And it's very much an album about breaking up with someone that he apparently wrote while he was in the process of realizing that he needed to break up with Julianne Phillips, who he broke up with, uh, got divorced from, married Patti Scalfa. And Midnight's is very much a, an album that has sort of swoony romantic moments, but is also about, you know, preferring ambition to conventional happiness, about, you know, sort of suspicion of big swooning emotion um, and about sort of being out of, you know, just sort of out of step. And some of her most interesting songs in recent years um, have sort of been about, you know, being prickly and unconventional and, you know, a, a version of this that had sort of a clearer structure that actually ended, for example, with a song like The Man, in which she kind of compares herself to Leonardo DiCaprio, like playing around, not settling down, having a good time, uh, rather than starting with that, would have been much more kind of narratively interesting. And, you know, I don't know if either of you read um, Taffy Brasser, Acker's um, piece about you know, going to see Taylor Swift in concert recently. I did and read it. it. You know, yeah, it ends with this line about how, like, she likes being a woman, but she loved being a girl. And that's sort of what she got to feel at Taylor Swift's concert. And it's funny because I normally really like Taffy's pieces. And this one just sat wrong with me because part of what is so interesting to me about the evolution of Swift's lyrics writing and her public persona is that I actually think Taylor Swift kind of likes being an unconventional woman, or at least a woman who is on some level not following the scripts that have laid out for her, or at least being very, very careful about the choices she makes um, in her personal life. And who does kind of enjoy being a complicated woman with, among other things, like a huge strategically accumulated real estate portfolio and enormous power in her industry. And, you know, who maybe is 
you know, who sings effectively about sort of girlish things and girlish emotions, but who kind of enjoys being, you know, I think almost 34 and in really full command of her powers and her place in the industry and, you know, who is a mogul rather than a mother, for example. And there was this, you know, I think, again, to go back to that Sasha Fair Jones profile, it ends with you know, for Jones saying like 20 years on when um, Swift's, you know, at song catalog is as long as her hair, like maybe she'll sing um, this song that she's singing to her mother, to her daughter. And I think like, it's interesting to me that Taylor Swift doesn't have a daughter, right? She doesn't even really show any signs of headed in that, heading in that particular direction. And so the, the sort of disjunct between, you know, the feeling that she creates in concert, which is about like, being in the inner sanctum of the popular girl and also sort of discovering that she has the same anxieties and fears and hopes and dreams. There is a disjunct between that and just like the more complicated life Swift seems to be living. And, you know, the Ars Tour is a perfectly enjoyable concert experience. I, you know, kind of needed it after the end of just a really, really hard news week. But you know, I think Taylor Swift is savvy enough to recognize that the most interesting thing about her is maybe not the thing that people are shelling out ultimately billions of dollars for. And the gutsier artistic move might have been to put on a show and make a movie that reflected that. Um, and maybe if she'll do it in another 20 years, I'll be really curious to see it. I mean, I, I would... <laughs> Peter, what did you think of the of the Eras <laughs> Tour movie? I, I want to hear what you were about event. to say, Sadi. I I think uh, Taylor Swift is very much more interested in how she appears on the surface than anything else uh, oh, sure. in terms I, of her in terms of her music. I think she is intentionally shallow in a way that I, I find kind of amusing, but uh, you know. The, the whole the the overarching theme of this concert from my perspective just watching it you know trying to trying to piece together is that she is constantly positioning herself as the look at me I'm not as good as the pretty girl and we're all weirdos together and we're and it's just like that's not at all what you look like on the stage and you're you're lying to all of us to make to make to make us to make the audience to make the 82% of the audience that is uh, women as uh, peter sent us you know the 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 audience breakdown in the uh, in in a text message to make to make us feel better about ourselves cuz we're just like you taylor and like it's ridiculous it's ridiculous yeah it's interesting i mean i think she plays in very effectively. And I think she, I mean, and one thing, one way you see this sure. is her, her, uh, her supporting cast of dancers yeah. and who I, I would, I think you could affectionately refer to as a crew of oddballs. Uh, you know, you've got the, you've got the like, oh, look at, look at, I, I like, I, it's, it's not, it's not like a, it's, it's not like a, the, the dance team you would see with like Madonna back in the 90s, right? It's not like, model good looks, very severe. It's like, look at us, we're all being friends. And like, you know. So I, each like, one of them has a distinctive look and they're very yes. specifically chosen uh, not to resemble Taylor Swift herself. Yes. And so the, the way that this u sort of thing used to be done is that backup dancers were very frequently kind of more generic, more bland versions of the star. 
And that yeah. is very much not the case here. And in fact, each one of them gets a, a, a little bit of a kind of a visual personality hook uh, and they become characters in her performances. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting given, you know, sort of the racial politics that have kind of surrounded her career. You know, Kanye's storming the stage to say that, you know, Beyonce should have won an award that she won. You know, it's very interesting that it is both a, um, you know, it's a group of backup singers and a group of dancers who are majority non-white. Um, and she also, I mean, Beyonce showed up to the premiere of this movie. Um, you know, Swift talked about sort of what a gift it's been to be working at the same time as her. I mean, she's she's very savvy and she's like, you know, she's the A student, right? And Sunny, I think that like, you're not wrong about the, you know, the sort of studiedness of the kind of implausible outcast persona. And I think this is a real dynamic around among teenage girls that there is power in being, not power, power is sort of the wrong word, but there is something sort of thrilling about being the non-popular girl taken into the confidence of the popular girl. And I think that dynamic pops up a lot um, where the popular girl needs someone like outside of the crew of plastics to be anxious and a little weird with. And, you know, I think Swift genuinely had some social trouble as a teenager. Um, I mean, you know, her parents moved her. To, she had like a songwriting contract when she was 14 years old. Like she didn't have a totally normal adolescence, obviously. Um, but she also, you know, had some, there's this sort of formative narrative about, you know, her friends ditching her and her discovering them all at the mall, et cetera. And so, you know, she has managed to play to this kind of primal teenage girl social dynamics while also, you know, writing some spikier stuff. And I, I totally understand why she would not be for you guys, right? I mean, this is, this is- Maybe she is for Peter. Maybe she, Peter- Peter, wait, we, we've got, we, all right, we, we, we got to get, we've ignored Peter's opinion on this movie, the whole, Peter, what did you make of Taylor Swift concert spectacular in movie theaters, I think Alyssa, AMC and others? I think Alyssa has really expertly and accurately captured Taylor Swift's appeal, both as a pop star and in this particular movie. And you'll notice something that Alyssa did not mention once, the music. And I mean the actual music, the sounds, the instruments, the uh, the tonality of it, the music part of the music. She talked about the lyrics, and I think the lyrics are very important here. But that's the thing that I want to talk very, about. If I can just say, it's a very narratively staged concert, right? It's like yes. a bunch of little short theater pieces. Yes. Uh, and But the, the part I want to start by talking about is just the music, because I'm not a big fan of Taylor Swift's music, but I'm not a hater either. And in particular, I've liked uh, some of her collaborations with Aaron Dessner of The National. And what's when Taylor Swift's music is at its best, it is tonally interesting. And that's what the her collaborations with Aaron Dessner really bring is a different, a, a different musical quality. Um, they sound good. They're obviously well-produced, a little too polished, frankly, for my taste. But if you listen to her music on a good speaker system, you 
can hear all of these sort of the, the different, all the different qualities of each one of the instruments and exactly what it's bringing. The guitars sound like guitars, the drums sound like drums, and the different instruments sound like different instruments, and they might even sound different throughout the course of the album, although, of course, each album has its own sonic character. And part of what bugged me about the, the movie is that for the purposes of a concert, typically what gets done is that instruments, is that the sound of a concert gets kind of smooshed together, even if you're playing songs from different albums that have uh, different sonic signatures. And that very much happened here. And then f further, the sound has been, all of the instruments and all of the musical sounds, uh, the, all of the musical qualities have been compressed into a kind of thumpy, aggressive mush so that so that the only thing that stands out in the mix is her voice. And it's not quite that you can't hear the guitar if you listen. It's not, I'm not saying that you cannot find the crack of the snare drum in the mix. What I am saying here is that it's all kind of burfry, burfry, samey. It's all been pushed down into this, uh, you know, sort of the, the low end of the mid range or the high end of the low range. And it just has this kind of aggressive synthy thump to it the whole time. And that's because live sound is hard. It's because Taylor Swift's music already in many cases does sound a little bit like that. And it's also because the thing that needs to stand out in this film is her voice and the words. And they, they really went out of their way to make sure you could understand the words, which, okay, I, I get it. But it means that this is a concert film in which the music is not particularly interesting or pleasant to listen to. And frankly, at a certain point in the film, I found myself actually covering my ears and putting my fingers over my ears because the thumpy loudness of it was, uh, audiophiles have a term, ear fatigue. It's, you've probably experienced this. It is not when you blow out your ears and you hear that ringing sound. It is just when your ears start to feel saggy and tired and stressed, almost like a muscle that you have worked for too long. And sitting in the theater for two hours and 45 minutes of of sound that has been engineered to not sound like much, I had ear fatigue and I found it vaguely kind of grating and unpleasant. Not so much that I needed to leave or anything like that, but just to the point where I was like, oh, this is, this is actually irritating to me. Um, and I, I just, I was very like, I was very annoyed by the way that this supposed concert movie put the music in the background and so that it could emphasize her voice and the way she looks and what she is doing on stage. Now, what she's doing on stage is kind of interesting just from a production standpoint because she, as Alyssa said, each one of these songs is its own elaborate stage play. Some are more elaborate than others. Typically, each album is sort of uh, gets its own kind of theme and look. She's got a different... It, her her costume changes more or less correspond to the album changes. In some cases, there are physical sets. In some cases, there are virtual sets. Uh, the, the, the way that absolutely every single part of her stage experience was a screen was kind of interesting. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that before. But it was also not that interesting after an hour. I was more interested in it when I first saw it. And after you know, getting into the third hour, I was just like, oh, it's well, there, there's the stage. It's popping up again. It, it goes up and down the whole time. It's just, and sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. And there's, and this was, this is the, the other thing that really, uh, that nagged me, um, 
throughout this movie is Alyssa talks about her as an A student, and that's totally right, and also about her sort of hyper polish, and that's totally right. But it's not just that she didn't make any mistakes, which would have in some ways made this more interesting. It's that this movie never makes any effort to surprise or confound or uh, offer anything new or unexpected as part of the Taylor Swift package. It is exactly what you expect at every single minute with no deviations. And so in some sense, it's a total success because it delivers fully on expectations. You kind of got at this in your introduction, Sonny, is that, well, you know what? It promises two hours and 45 minutes of Taylor Swift singing and dancing and playing her songs, and that's what you get. And yes, and I, this is this was an opportunity to do something different with her persona and with uh, and with her image. And she is totally committed to not doing anything that might deviate from that image. I think that the if you want to make the argument against me here, you have you can talk about the ways that she is toyed with different genres. Uh, and she has, right? She's played sort of uh, stuff that is a little bit folkier and stuff that is a little bit more sort of aggro, dancey, synthy, uh, electronic, and uh, as well as kind of her country background. But it's all just basic pop conventions with a little bit of a different sonic signature. And there's just no point at which she actually tries to do something that is outside, that breaks expectations or breaks the mold. And it's fine. I will continue to listen to a handful of Taylor Swift albums that I find enjoyable at times, and I will never watch this movie again because this movie doesn't provide anything that doesn't the, the movie itself doesn't matter. There's a there's a way in which this movie is just an object for people to gather around and for for Taylor Swift's fans to find each other and to wear friendship bracelets. And I wish the movie had made a case for itself rather than for the community around the movie because this is fine if people want to build a community around this movie, but you should make you should build your community around a thing that is actually good, not just a thing that everybody has decided is is the thing that you're gonna be part of. And it's and this and, and the, the Taylor Swift phenomenon, I think, is it really sort of demonstrates like why I sometimes don't get pop like mass pop culture is because they that some like there are a lot of mass pop culture is not really about the thing that it's supposedly about. It's about gathering together with other people and enjoying the presence of other people. And that's great and that's fun. But that's what barbecues are for. You don't need like, and, and then you should make good barbecue, right? And like, you don't, you don't need the rest of it. You don't need all of the, you, like the thing itself at the center of it should be a wonderful object and a wonderfully made thing. And this is not wonderful. It's just hyper competent. So Taylor Swift is basically a Dickie's barbecue is what you're saying. And that's Peter, a it's a, a mid tier barbecue chain. It's fine. Peter, can I also say that you know, it's fascinating that she is sort of making no choices and taking no risks in a show where there's explicitly a piece of banter about how her fans had given her sort of loyalty and room to experiment, right? And yes, yeah, I I believe that there is a sort of spiky, weird, interesting version of Taylor Swift in there, and I you know. One of the things, like, she can't dance. She's not a good dancer, and I think she knows that. Like, she her signature move is the skip. And so the version of the tour that she does at 50, where she just kind of has to be Bruce Springsteen and, like, play guitar or piano all evening, in a way is going to be much more interesting to me than this. 
All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour Cinema Spectacular in movie theaters. Now, Alyssa. Thumbs up as a way to see the Eras Tour. But if you don't want to see the Eras Tour, you don't have to see it. Peter. I guess it delivers on its promises. Maybe that's a thumbs up. It's My thumb is exactly in the middle. Look, it's a thumbs up if you're a Taylor Swift fan. It's a thumbs down if you don't care about Taylor Swift and you're looking for a movie. A, a movie qua movie, thumbs down. I mean, it's just, it's 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 incredibly boring uh, for large stretches of time. All right, that is it for today's show. Many thanks for our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Uh, tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. 